Today's episode is brought to you by MetaMask Portfolio. You'll be hearing more about them later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Altea Spinozzi, Senior Fixed Income Strategist at Saxo Bank. Altea, welcome to Forward Guidance. How are you doing? Very good, Jack. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for, for joining us. So let's stick in my, you know, my neck of the woods, U.S. rates. The long-duration treasuries have been in a brutal bear market that many thought was over after the brutal bear market in 2022. This summer and late fall, the, the pain has continued. However, over the past 48 hours, there's been a, a, a renewed rally in the long end based on the U.S. Treasury making a certain announcement. So what, overall, let's start. What is your view on, on duration now? Are bonds, you know, attractive? Well, Jack, I've been a bond bear for a couple of years now, and I'm still struggling in taking duration risk. And with duration risk, I'm talking more about the ultra-long um, maturities in the yield curve, so 20 year plus, the famous, for example, TLT that I'm sure that uh, you have discussed uh, a lot about. And the reason behind that is that uh, we might not have seen the end of uh, the bear market in the long part of the yield curve. Um, yesterday, two crucial things happened in the United States. We had a quarterly refunding announcement. Uh, and uh, we had uh, the FOMC meeting. Following this announcement, uh, we had uh, the yield curve uh, bull steepening. So we have seen uh, 10 year yields going from uh, uh, 4.95% to now uh, 4.65%, around uh, 30 basis points uh, uh, lower. And uh, today, people really think that uh, the duration trade uh, is, is a good trade. But I still think that. Uh, um, it's not the time yet to pick up that bet. Uh, the reason it's very simple, there is a lot of selling pressure. You see, let's start from yesterday, the quarterly refunding announcement. So yesterday, 10-year U.S. Treasury yields dropped by 20 basis points in one, point, in one day. 15 basis points of those 20 came before the FOMC meeting. And it was due to weaker ISM readings, of course, uh, but also and especially because uh, the quarterly refunding announcement showed that the U.S. Treasuries next week is going uh, um, to sell $112 billion worth in uh, um, T-bills and uh, coupon notes uh, against the 114 that the market was expecting. So that has lowered the, the term premium because uh, uh, less issuance uh, means uh, somewhat, somewhat uh, um, tighter uh, demand and supply, and that should be constructive for risk. And that's why we have seen um, uh, yields uh, dropping uh, before the FOMC uh, meeting. But the big problem with that is that next week, uh, the kind of sizes uh, that uh, the U.S. Treasury is going to sell on 10 years and 30-year notes uh, are massive, and they are similar to what we have seen uh, during uh, the COVID pandemic. The U.S. Treasury is selling uh, 40 billion uh, notes, 10 years notes, and uh, I believe it was around 24 billion 30 years uh, bonds. 
if we look at pre-COVID, so let's say the mm-hmm. 10 years between 2010 and 2020, 10, the average size, auction size of 10 years notes was 22 billion. So almost half what the US Treasury is selling next week and roughly around $14 billion in 30-year US treasuries. So we have seen a pickup of almost 60-70% in term of sizes. But the main difference is that before COVID and also during COVID, we had quantitative easing. Now we don't have quantitative easing. We have quantitative tightening. The Federal Reserve is a net seller of these issuances. U.S. banks are not there either to buy these kind of issuances because they bought U.S. treasuries at 4.2%, and now they don't have any more that buffer to add on to their duration. Um, so, and foreigner buyers, and I'm uh, talking especially about uh, Japanese investors, which hold around uh, 15% uh, of uh, the U.S. Uh, um, treasuries outstanding, they, they are repatriating home. Because, why? Because uh, right now, um, US, Japanese investors buying U.S. treasuries at 4.6% uh, we need to lock in a minus 1% yield once they hedge currency risk. Everything is telling me that the bond bear market is not done. And maybe we are seeing a rally this week on the back of, you know, like better expectations in terms of supply. But still, it's very Important to say that the U.S. Treasuries announced that also next quarter they are going to increase coupon supply because they have a bigger uh, fiscal spending that they have uh, um, to finance. And uh, so at this point in time, it's very hard to see that uh, trade performing. And Jack, I want to make a, a practical example, right? Um there is obviously we have a lot of U.S. Treasury issuance, but if we take the ones that they bear a very uh, low coupon, for example, the ones that they have been issued during the 2020 COVID pandemic, we can find U.S. Treasuries with a maturity to 2050 uh, paying a slightly over 1% coupon. These issuances have been falling um, to 40 cents on the dollars. And a lot of people have been buying them because they're saying, like, this is cheap. Buying U.S. treasuries at 40 cents on the dollars is almost a distressed case, right? But uh, the problem with that kind of trade is that uh, if you buy now and this trade gets against you, right? Because uh, the duration, it's massive on this kind of bonds. You are not going to be able to do anything with this kind of issuance. You just have to pray that at a certain point, the Federal Reserve is going to cut rates fast enough and revert to what we have to the kind of levels that we have seen more or less uh, during the COVID pandemic uh, or just before the COVID pandemic. And right now, with inflation running double the Federal Reserve target, uh, that's unfeasible. 
So it means uh, that that investment uh, might be worthless uh, in the next uh, few months or year. And uh, there is much better opportunities out there. So when I look at uh, um, U.S. treasuries, uh, not only also corporate uh, investment-grade bonds, uh, there is bonds uh, with 10 to 15 years maturities that they provide a coupon between 6 and 7%. They still give investors uh, some sort of duration risk and not as excessively as uh, that U.S. Treasuries 2050 with 1% coupon, but uh, they still do. And uh, they pay a coupon that is quite sizable and... Uh, that implies that if in that trade goes against you, investor can still sit on that, receive 6 to 7% per year in coupon and wait for that kind of scenario. So the Federal Reserve aggressively cutting rates to materialize. But until that doesn't happen, it doesn't, ma- it doesn't make sense to, uh, to amass on, you know, high modified duration bonds. Let's just hone in on the demand points. We've got foreign buyers who sometimes they want the dollar risk, other times they need to hedge that risk. You've got commercial, the private banking system who bought a lot of treasuries in 2020 and 2021, and they're somewhat non-economic buyers. You've got the hedge community levered, levered investment. You've got the Fed. They're not there anymore. They're net sellers. They're rolling off their, their balance sheets. Who is going to be the marginal buyer of, of treasuries? And at what point do you think, okay, there's so much bad news, but that bad news is priced in that in that 10-year note, you know, that, that is so high? Yeah, I think that that point is going to arrive when there is a clear understanding that inflation is under control and is going to revert to the 2% target. Right now, like I said before, we are still double the Federal Reserve target. And there is a, a lot of things happening, a geopolitical risk. We were talking about the war in Ukraine, you know, uh, one year ago. And now we are talking about uh, a war in Israel while the war in Ukraine is still going. And a war means, uh, after all, uh, more fiscal spending and therefore more, issue, uh, more uh, U.S. Treasury issuance. A war means uh, some sort of um, inflationary kind of push because because, uh, that is a critical area for the passage of uh, commodities. And therefore, if something happens over there, we cannot exclude that commodity prices uh, will start to increase. We have seen already oil going uh, from 80 to 90. Right. Um, So definitely that can be a resurgence. What really I need that these things to be to be fixed. Another thing that we would need to have fixed is the demand. Right. Um, Because I said the Federal Reserve, U.S. commercial banks, you know, they they are they were somewhat price insensitive buyers of U.S. treasuries. What we are left with, we are real money. We have pension funds, asset management. Uh, we have investors that are buying U.S. treasuries. And all these players, they are price-sensitive players. And they want to see a fair price on their U.S. treasury bonds. So next week, 
um, refunding of 10 years and 30 years bonds. We are going to see that players that need to secure uh, a yield for these kind of issuances. And it will be interesting to see if they want to have um, the 10-year U.S. Treasuries at 4.6% instead of close to 5 and the reason for that is that yesterday at the FOMC meeting, yes, it sounded dovish, but what Powell said is that they might not hike only on the basis of long-term yields to remain high. So he was talking about yields around 5%. Now they are much lower. And if they stay that low, they need to do something. It might not be interest rate hikes. They still have quantitative tightening and they might want to re-steepen that yield curve. And even if they don't want to re-steepen that yield curve, the kind of uh, uh, movement in place that was in the past few weeks is going to resume and continue. You see, uh, Jack, I think that I read a lot of news between yesterday and today and almost everybody was uh, talking about the fact that now the market is positioning for rate cuts. That's not true. The two-year U.S. Treasuries is still trading around 5%. Yes, it, it fell to 4.9%, but if you look at it in a graph, it has been around 5% for the last three months. So that has not been a massive reprisement. When I look at the three-month software curve, I still see... Um, the expectations from markets uh, that uh, interest rates are not going to fall below 4%. And uh, therefore, if interest rates in the long run, in the next 10 years, are not going to fall below 4%, the 10-year U.S. Treasuries has to reprise above this level. And historically, the 10-year uh, U.S. Treasury uh, was pricing between 100 and 150 basis points over the Fed fund rate. So that means that the fair value on 10-year U.S. Treasuries is around 5 and 5.5%. We need bond future to drop much further and to see to show maybe that interest rates in the next 10 years are going to drop to 3% or lower in order to have... Uh, 10 years yields trading more or less where they are now. Today's interview is brought to you by MetaMask Portfolio, your one-stop shop to manage your crypto assets and access a range of Web3 services all in one place. Overseeing your crypto assets across different wallets and networks can be very complicated. MetaMask Portfolio solves this by giving you the reins to manage your crypto from a single decentralized application or dApp. Just connect to MetaMask Portfolio to get a bird's eye view of all your coins, tokens, and NFTs, and you can easily buy, sell, swap, bridge, and stake crypto assets at competitive rates right within the app from a vetted list of providers. No more jumping between dozens of sites and apps. MetaMask Portfolio lets you do more in Web3 your way, giving you secure and convenient access to a wide range of features and services all in one place. Manage your portfolio your way with MetaMask Portfolio. Click the link in the description of today's episode to get started. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. Could you speak a little bit about the foreign demand for US Treasuries, Europe and, and Japan mainly? You know, one might think, oh, Japanese investors, they can buy a 10-year uh, Japanese government bond, JGB, at less than 1%, or they can get that nice, uh, you know, juicy 
uh, you know, 4.6% yield on the 10-year treasury, it's it's a bargain. Tell us why it's a little bit more complicated than that regarding the hedging cost of hedging uh, um, you know, uh, dollars in, into yen and why actually if you take into account that it actually might not be attractive, it might be very unattractive for Japanese investors to buy treasuries. Absolutely. So the way it works is that foreign investors uh, um, typically hedge against uh, their current risk on a three months forward. So that position needs to continuously to be rolled. And uh, right now, what that this uh, hedging cost is showing uh, is that uh, investors will have uh, to deal with uh, a yield on 10-year U.S. treasuries of minus 1%. It's similar for for uh, uh, euro investors. There is a catch, though, Jack. When we look at the Bank of Japan, and we all everybody talks about uh, yields rising uh, in uh, Japan. Of course, uh, you know if you want to invest uh, into long term uh, um, sovereign bonds, uh, it makes sense that uh, Japanese investors invest at home at zero point nine percent rather than minus one percent in the U.S. But there is the expectations of 10 years JGB, Japanese government bonds, yields to continue to rise and to break above 1%. So if that's the expectations, what we are expecting there is a bear market. So what I'm trying to get to is that the dynamic is not that straightforward. As we are seeing... uh, uh, yields rising in the in uh, Japan, the Japanese JGBs will get more attractive, but uh, while they rise, uh, demand will still not be there. It will take a while to play out. So, and that's quite telling because in the past uh, month uh, we have seen some sort of uh, demand drop from uh, indirect bidders, uh, which you know are. Uh, normally foreign investors. But uh, the drop has not been substantial. And probably the reason for that is that uh, there was the expectations uh, that yields in Japan would move uh, or are moving uh, much higher in the midterm. So this is all about timing. It means that uh, maybe that kind of drop in in indirect bidders is going to come at a later point, we expect the Bank of Japan to normalize monetary policies throughout 2024. It's not going to be um, a one-meeting task. It's going to take a lot of adjustments because they are normally very cautious. But while they do that, they will um, gradually decrease the demand for U.S. treasuries and also European sovereigns. Do you, do you forecast a scenario where the hedging costs of converting dollar risk into back into the Japanese yen might decline? You said the a hedged pickup for a Japanese investor of, of U.S. treasuries is not 4.6%. It's negative 1%. Why is it so expensive? Does it have something to do with the, the yield curve? And, and might that change where actually, oh, aha, finally, they are treasuries are attractive to Japanese investors because the hedging costs have gone down? Because I, I know there have been times in the past when Treasury yields were much, much lower when Japanese investors, it was actually very attractive for them to buy, right? It's all about interest rate differentials, right? And uh, and that's why it's expensive now, because in the US, uh, there is uh, a huge difference in yield compared uh, to Japan. Uh, and the same, it's, uh, it's in Europe. So 
uh, it all comes down to that. And uh, the and uh, there is nothing really that the U.S. Treasury can do about that. What they can, the U.S. Treasury can do, or the Federal Reserve can do, um, is uh, try to resume qu- uh, quantitative easing, which is uh, quite of uh, far fetched. You know, like if they really wanted to uh, boost the demand for U.S. Treasuries, they can do that, and that would suppress uh, yields. But there is no willingness to do that uh, in. In, in the foreseeable future, because uh, inflation is still uh, double as much, or otherwise they have to try to get into some uh, conven- unconventional ways. But I think it's very important to understand that the situation we are in now is because of fiscal spending. We have uh, fiscal spending has been the reason why the Federal Reserve has been able to hike by 500 basis points. Uh, and uh, nothing is broken yet, you know. Like I didn't, I don't see anybody screaming in the in the stock market yet. <laughs> and so, um, and uh, and that has been all uh, because of these huge programs uh, that uh, the U.S. government uh, have uh, been applying. And uh, realistically, that's not going to change in the foreseeable su- future. In 2024, we have a U.S. election. Um, there is a lot on the table. And the politicians, uh, obviously, if we are starting to see a slowdown of the economy, will try uh, to steer money selectively in order to help certain sectors of uh, the economy. And realistically, there is not going to be austerity until interest rates are going to be so high that that's going to be a problem to raise them. It's going to be a huge problem. This is fiscal spending is not going to go away that easily. And that, that supports the economy and ultimately supports yields, higher yields. But it is that shape of the yield curve. It's in interest differentials, but also that shape of the yield curve. That is why the hedging cost is so expensive. In other words, if, if the US, if the yield curve was more upward sloping, would it be that would the hedging cost be lower and it might be more attractive for Japanese investors? It should be definitely because then the front part will be cheaper, right? <laughs> As, sorry, it will uh, in in terms of borrowing money. That makes sense because a Japanese investor buying a ten year, they're buying a you know a duration instrument on the long end, and they're funding it with short term. So it's the same way a leveraged investor now, you know, borrowing overnight money to buy a ten year, it's just very unattractive. There is a point that you're raising there that is quite important: the shape of the yield curve, right? If we have expectations, you know, like there is a lot of people out there saying, oh, yes, the Federal Reserve now is dovish. Uh, Let's buy risk. Let's buy bonds. Let's buy long-term bonds. Let's buy um, the Standard & Poor and stocks, whatever we want, right? Uh, But uh, realistically, if uh, we have the expectations that the Federal Reserve is done with uh, uh, the hiking cycle, and therefore it will start to cut rates, that would imply that the yield curve would steepen. And how investors would position for that? They would buy the front part and they would sell the long part, regardless of how the steepening is. Bearish, bullish, it doesn't matter. So what does that uh, do? It puts even more pressure on the, on the long part of the yield curve. When the two-year goes down, it is likely that the 10-year, the 30-year will go down, but just not as much. So that will be a, a bull steepener. You know, I, in history, there are times when the, the short end goes down, the long end goes up. That that's can be pretty, you know, topsy-turvy and, and wild. But you're saying risk-adjusted, 
the tier would go down. And now people say, oh, but you want that duration exposure. So buy the 30 year on an unlevered basis. And if you're on for an unlevered basis, that's the, you know, that's where the most juice is the duration. But you would say, no, you would just want to do a levered two year thing. Okay, so earlier you referenced quantitative easing. At, you know, most of the Fed's quantitative easing was before they 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 hiked rates. But you say so it's you know there's so much collateral that is is owned by the the Federal Reserve, and now it's reducing its balance sheet via quantitative tightening. Do you think that the Federal Reserve will return to quantitative easing? Is quantitative tightening sustainable? Can there be a bid for Treasuries? You know, with with the central bank not buying. I think right now it seems that quantitative. Uh, quantitative tightening is uh, sustainable. And uh, Jack, it's very important to understand that now the US, uh, the, the Federal Reserve is not actively selling bonds on its balance sheet. It's just letting uh, run off uh, some of the maturities uh, around 95 billion per month. So it's not really an active reduction of the balance sheet. It's not as aggressive. Um, before they go and uh, they, they look at quantitative easing, uh, they will probably tweak uh, this kind of runoff if they, want, if they need to, or otherwise, if they see the yield curve to pull flatten, as we have seen in these days, and therefore, I don't know, the 10 years go back to 4%, and that's not restrictive enough because inflation continue to be sustained, then uh, they can increase uh, um, the runoff amount or actively sell the securities under uh, their balance sheet. So it's a very powerful uh, kind of tool. Um, and uh, so far, it has not uh, really used uh, to its force. Right now, what really central banks, especially the Federal Reserve, has been doing is just hiking in the front end aggressively and hoping for inflation to adjust lower. And that by doing that, uh, it put a lot of pressure on uh, those uh, cash-strapped uh, kind of corporates, uh, um, corporates that have maturities uh, coming due soon, which are very little at this point because the wall of maturities is um, starting again in the second half of 2024 for the high yield space. It gave a kind of advantage for risky assets that are pricing on the long part of the yield curve. You have companies like Apple that they can basically uh, issue debt, uh, 10 years debt at around, uh, I don't know now, but 4%, 4.5%, and invest in the front end at uh, the three months TBLs is at 5.3%. And, and would they have sold that bond, this, the 4% yielded this year or in 2020, in 2021? When when they sold when they issued a, a, a long term bond yielding four percent would that have been this you know I mean in example would that have been this year or in twenty twenty to now right like uh, Apple will be pricing more or less where the the U S ten uh, uh, year Treasury is so around four point six percent will be able to raise that money and then put invest it they this is not how they operate obviously but they can invest it short term at a much better rate. This is the take, but all other um, all other businesses are not able to do that. Um, a lot of uh, the other corporates uh, are not able to do that. But it's just um, you know, like quite telling uh, how uh, the shape of the yield curve can still uh, provoke uh, um, you know, like a, a buoyant market, uh, like a, 
a rally in risky assets. And that's exactly what we have seen uh, throughout this year. It is when the yield curve steepens, uh, especially bear steepens, as we have seen also lately, that uh, we start to have problems. And probably that's why we have seen central banks to start to become a little bit more um, cautious uh, in that sense. But uh, Jack, there is no danger, at least I don't see danger for uh, the Federal Reserve to cut anytime soon. Um, right now, the bond market expects interest rate cut to begin in June next year. Um, if the economy continues to strive, that might still be uh, a little bit too early if inflation doesn't uh, um, decelerate to the pace that the, the Federal Reserve expects. Um, the first central bank that is going to cut rates is going to de definitely be uh, the ECB. And uh, in, here in Europe, uh, we have a recession. Uh, there is Germany that is in a recession, the Netherlands in a recession, Italy entering in a recession. And uh, we have uh, the BTP boom spread um, now is a little bit off, 200 basis points, but it's still in an alarming level. And uh, the inflation is not where the ECB wants it to be. And, and that's, that's a huge problem. This kind of uh, um, line of thought connects very well to what we have seen in the 70s and in the 80s. So we believe that we are living through a stagflationary kind of environment here in, the, in Europe and also in the UK. We believe that we are going to see stagflation uh, in the US, US as well um, at the beginning of uh, next year. And what it is stagflation? Stagflation uh, can be measured as a period of time where there is a sluggish growth or a recession. There is high inflation and high unemployment. And that brings us back in the 70s, early 90s. And in, those, in that period, what we have seen is several waves of stagflation. And those several waves of stagflation, would they, would they really produce higher 10-year U.S. Treasury yields? So if that's what we are seeing uh, today, there is that tail risk that instead of seeing yields dropping, yields might continue to rise until inflation is under control. And so to clarify, earlier you said quantitative tightening is sustainable or is not sustainable? Uh, sorry. <laughs> yes, I believe that is sustainable in the short term, in the midterm, mm -hmm. until something breaks. But then when something breaks, it can be smartly used to give a signal that the Federal Reserve is there to support the economy. And even if uh, they don't do much, even though the Federal Reserve... Uh, doesn't actively engage into quantitative easing, but it just adjusts the amount of bonds that is letting run off, then that could be still a, a bullish sign that could give like a constructive uh, um, sign to the, to, the, to the market. But uh, let's not forget that the reason why uh, the Federal Reserve is engaging in quantitative tightening uh, is that... Uh, um, it's forecasting that possibly there is going to be another downturn and they need the balance sheet. <laughs> they need to increase that balance sheet. So that's why they are decreasing it now. And it would be very wrong to put a stop because uh, the balance sheet is huge. 
is just off, uh, just below seven trillion, and uh, at its peak, it hit uh, eight trillion dollars. So um, it, it definitely needs uh, a reduction, and uh, I, I really hope for that uh, um, quantitative tightening to continue or even accelerate at a certain point. Right, and that the maximum limit of how much can roll off is 95 billion, but uh, because a lot, some of its mortgage-backed securities and the prepayment rates have, have collapsed, not a lot of those mortgage-backed securities are, are rolling off. That's also a point, like Apple, many American homeowners borrowed at 3% uh, uh, in got a mortgage, and now they're getting 5.5% on their cash. Uh, maybe that's one reason the US is not in a recession. Very interesting, Altea. You say that uh, some of Europe is already in a recession or, or entering a recession. Is that why uh, the rise in uh, European bond markets, bond yields, I should say, uh, has been more muted? In other words, the, the sell-off in European rates has been more mild than American rates. Do you attribute that to the ECB and, and, and uh, you know, uh, su- supply dynamics? Or is it mainly because the economy is much, much worse and bonds tend to rally or do well or do less bad when there's a recession? Probably because of the latter, because the economy is in a worse shape than the U.S., and uh, realistically, there is, uh, there is that uh, understanding uh, that uh, the ECB would not, to be, would not be able to do too much because there is uh, a lot of differences uh, between European countries in terms of cost of funding. And here I'm talking about sovereign spreads. The most known and popular uh, sovereign spread out there is the BTP Bund spread, which is Italy, 10 years yields minus uh, 10-year German yields. And uh, that has been quite a reference because if we look at uh, historically from 2010 until today, whenever that spread was breaking above 200 basis points, and now it's at 190 basis points, well, the ECB started to be alarmed and they started to intervene when we had periods of that spread around 250 basis points. So the big point here, Jack, is that uh, if we see a recession um, deepening in in Europe, a stagflation deepening in Europe, it's almost uh, impossible to expect that spread to be stable. It's actually uh, more plausible for that spread to continue to widen. And that's going to be a problem for the ECB. And it's going to be even a bigger problem if that spread widens all of a sudden in the next few months when inflation is still well above target. Because at that point, what the ECB can do, it can either um, maintain hawkish, right? Remain where it is or, you know, hike further. And that's going to be supportive for the euro, but negative for, uh, for the BTP, for the sovereign spreads in the euro area. Or otherwise, it goes to intervene on the BTP boot spread at the cost of the euro. And the thing is that it sounds like a no-brainer, but we have to believe that a wider uh, BTP boot spread or other uh, wider uh, sovereign spreads in the European um, in the European uh, um, space, uh, it's a political problem. It's a political problem because uh, for the ECB. Uh, why the ECB would want uh, wider spreads in specific uh, countries of the ECB, uh, of the European Union, right? It would want to tighten financial conditions equally 
all around uh, the European space because everybody is basically using the euro currency. But there's also a political play, uh, problem uh, domestically for Italy and for other countries that would see that spread widening because they will be like, hey, uh, we are not here paying at the cost of, you know, other countries that have, uh, you know, like they can finance themselves at half of, uh, of, uh, uh, of the, the rates that we see here. So it's a huge problem and uh, it brings... It brings a lot of questions in terms of political stability as well. Absolutely. An analogy, if the Euro, uh, if, if, the, if the United States were not one nation, but it was a union um, like, like, like the European Union is, it would be like if the Federal Reserve was, you know, buying Texas municipal debt and in order to, to, to narrow the spread between, you know, Texas and California spread or between California and, and, and Texas. So that just, just for our, our American audience, that's a... Uh, potential potential analogy and then the european uh, central bank ecb for a while was doing quantitative easing or they're doing quantitative tightening now but they're also doing spread control so they're targeting that spread between the btp italian uh, uh, bonds and, and german bonds and yeah how's that playing out so they are not really targeting it's not like some sort of you know like range bound uh, that like Bank of Japan, Nielker control, what they do is that, that they are uh, doing quantitative tightening under one of the programs of the ECB, which is the APP program, um, which is the Asset Purchase Program. Uh, but uh, they, rem- uh, they left intact the PEP program, the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program. The PEP program was started in 2020. And it was aimed at helping those countries that experienced, they were worse hit by the pandemic. So therefore, in that case, the Italy, right? Like they, were, they purchased a huge amount of BTPs. If they haven't done quantitative tightening on that program, because they know that once that they go to touch that program, that would be bearish for Italian BTPs. And they don't want to do that. And they kept it intact. They continually invest. But there is also some other ways to look at that. When you look at the PEP program, the average weighted maturity is around seven years. So it means that even if they would start to do quantitative tightening, they wouldn't have enough redemptions actually to lower the balance sheet because they are going to be like a few years away. So there is also not much reason to start that now. Okay, so you said the ECB could turn dovish to protect that uh, BTP spread to, to narrow it, yeah. but that would come at the expense of the, the euro. Tell me, are you talking about balance sheet policy, QE, QT, spread control, or, or rates? Because there's a potential they could keep rates high, relatively high where they are now, 4.5%, but target that spread and, and really you know police that, that spread to make sure that uh, Italian bonds don't, don't sell off drastically in the same way maybe you know when silicon valley bank failed the federal reserve initiated this policy bank term funding program and because of that they didn't need to cut rates they could actually keep on hiking rates so you know the idea that balance sheet policy and interest rate policy sometimes can go in different directions to maintain an overall stance in that case uh, it's much harder to do uh, in the meaning that uh, you see like when it's very 
it's impossible to compare the European sovereign space with the US sovereign space. Because uh, in Europe, uh, there is not uh, a very liquid issuance of European bonds. Um, every country issues their own bonds. So we are talking about uh, German bonds. That's the reference normally. When you talk about uh, European cost of funding, you talk about the German bonds. And then you have, obviously, Italian BTPs, French OATs, uh, Spanish bonos, and so forth. Um, so... When the ECB hikes and cuts rates and creates this program, it has to do it in a fairly way. And uh, historically, um, it never really tackled uh, explicitly, especially ETP boon spreads. It basically did it uh, implicitly by... Uh, creating these sort of programs, APP and the PEP program. When I talk about uh, it has to choose between the PTP boom spreads and the euro, it means that inflation is still high. And if they choose to, to basically go and help uh, growth in Europe and try to create a buffer and maintain that spread stable, uh, then what would happen that uh, they cannot really hike or tighten financial conditions further and the euro then will fall because compared to the dollar, we, our expectations is for the Federal Reserve to stay on hold and to remain more or less where they are. With a lower euro currency, they might be at risk uh, to bringing back inflation. And that's the critical point. And that's the mistake also that we have seen in the 70s. They basically, central banks thought that uh, um, inflation was done, it was over, and uh, they started uh, to see how they could normalize uh, the economy, and then it rebounded again. And that might be the same risk that Europe is running at this moment. And we are talking about uh, a can like a countries, uh, the European Union, that is much dependent on commodity prices and it's buying all the commodities are trading in US dollars and not in euro. So the euro currency is key. Right. And how does all of, of that, which you just explained, how does that impact Europeans' investors' demand for US treasuries? We talked about Japanese investors for, for US dollar treasuries. What about how, how are European investors thinking about allocating to, to buying U.S. duration that are denominated in dollars? Well, the thing is that the European investors have a lot of opportunities here in Europe. Um, you see, like if we look also at the 10-year bonds, it was trading negative for, uh, for quite a bit. And now it's uh, around 3%. And also there is a lot of scarcity of collateral. The, the, the German government cannot issue enough uh, uh, boons uh, for how much is the demand out there. So, you know, like European investors, uh, yes, they buy uh, US treasuries. Now it's not convenient for them because of that uh, um, interest rates discrepancy, like exactly what's happening uh, in uh, uh, with Japanese investors, but they have quite a broad, um, they, they have quite a wide range of opportunities. And here, Jack, I really think it's key to talk also about the corporate space because uh, um, we had a sensible repricing here in Europe that didn't happen 
in the US yet. And I'm talking about junk versus investment grade corporate bonds. When I look at junk in the US, they offer 3% percentage points above uh, investment grade um, corporates in the US. So investment grade corporates trade around uh, 6%, and that's an average in yield. Um, the average yield of U.S. junk bonds is around 9%, just 300 basis points. And 300 basis points is where they were trading before COVID. But at that point, uh, interest rates uh, were off what they are now in the U.S. When I look instead at Europe, the junk to uh, investment grade spread is around 500 basis points. So they pay five full percentage points over investment grade corporate bonds. And in Europe, junk corporate bonds are not as leveraged as in the U.S. and they have better fundamentals. So everything comes back like to this risk to this uh, because also duration is part of risk and so forth. Uh, it brings back to the to the fact uh, that uh, what we see happening in the U.S. Uh, is not normal. It needs a repricing somehow. Risk needs to be repriced, and it's going to happen because uh, credit is not at a fair price compared to the risk that uh, we are heading towards, and I'm talking about that wall of uh, maturities that it's happening uh, next year. Um, at that point, it's key to see if these junk issuers are going uh, to be able to refinance uh, their debt at current uh, um, uh, interest rates. Althea, we're, we're going to wrap it up soon. But my, my final question for you is, you've been bearish on bonds. That's work. Bonds have sold off dramatically. You remain bearish. A lot, a lot of people who have been right, they've changed their mind. They said, actually, you know, now that the 10 year is close to 5%, I'm no longer bearish or I'm neutral or I may even be bullish. You are doubling down. You say, I'm still bearish. What would it take for you to stop being bearish on bonds? But Jack, I have to correct you there. I'm bearish ultra-long maturities, so 20 years plus. The 10 years, actually, I think is a good buy. And the reason for that is that at, at, at the yield that is offering now, around the five point, uh, sorry, 4.65%, it can provide upside in case we have a recession. But in case we don't have, if we have yields rising further, let's say towards 6%, the kind of loss that one will have to incur will be minimal. Because if you look at the one-year holding period, if yields move by 100 basis points higher, then the loss will be around, the total return will be around minus 2%. So the 10 years is a good buy. And I think that what is interesting now is to be to, to build a barbell in a portfolio. So buying the front part of the yield curve, which is basically almost risk-free, you need the interest rates to be hiked by 200 basis points to start to lose money on one year holding period and the 10 years. But still, if you look at longer maturities, my recommendation, it will be to look at those securities that offer a sizable coupon so that you will still get that duration bet that many are after uh, but uh, in case it doesn't get your way in the short term, you will still be able to benefit from a high coupon. 
Got it. So you, you what you, you remain bearish on is that ultra duration long end of, of the yield curve. So I take it you're not bullish on the Austrian 100-year bond? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, it's tempting. Uh, it's trading around 35 cents on the dollar. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. But I feel like when, when I look at it like that, uh, it, it, it looks like a directional bet. Uh, and it's going. It's a directional bet on interest rates, and we are not there. We are arriving there, um, but I think that uh, it's something to look at more towards the end of the year, so December or the beginning of 2024. Got it. And I, I'm just looking at the spread between 30-year Treasuries and 10-year Treasuries. Now it's it's uh, not that that high, but if it returned to something like 100 basis points, you might get a little less bearish on it. I imagine. Uh, absolutely. Like uh, the, the higher the yield, the more attractive uh, bonds are. Um, but uh, I want to keep flexible in, cl- in case there is that tail event that inflation is uh, not won over yet, and that uh, we might have uh, central banks staying hawkish for longer. There we go. Well, Althea, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, people can follow your work uh, on Twitter at Althea Spinozzi. And uh, thanks so much. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Thank you, Jack.